Okay. Wow, it works. Good. Um, so glad to be here. Um, I remember uh, Pastor David, uh, I was a shy college student, and I asked him to kind of mentor and help me along when I was in college. And he invited me to his place, and he ripped open these frozen steaks that have been in the freezer for a long time. And I remember when he was cooking it for me, I was like, ah, oh, that's love. Steak, frozen steak, delicious. And then I remember we went to McDonald's, and um, I always use two straws because you get more volume. So you get a lot more Coke with two straws than one. And then when everyone's drinking Coke at McDonald's, you, you see which one's yours because you have two straws in it. And I remember we went to eat, and then he all of a sudden got the drinks. I got the food. And when I sat down, there were two straws inside my drink. And I was like, right here. It's the little things. And in the same way, I think we all need people to help us see and long and to know that we are not alone in our love and affection for Christ. That we need to see that there are people out there who endlessly strive to want more of him. And when that happens, it also encourages and excites your heart. And so it's my privilege to be here. I love serving with my friends and mentors and younger people like Pastor Albert who, you know, just gets excited about Jesus and worship. And seeing that really encourages me. Um, Today we're going to look at a text from Luke chapter 15. We're going to read verse 1 through 8 and then verse 20 through 24. And The text is a lot longer than that, but I'm just going to highlight these points so that we can kind of look at what it says. So Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3, so he told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing, okay? I want you to remember that, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends with his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together all her friends. And neighbor saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Another party and celebration over something lost that is found. And in verse 20, and he rose and came to his father. And this is, I'll tell you about what this story is about, the two sons. But the younger son here in reference, comes to his father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the father, bringing home the long-lost son, 
embraces him and kisses him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to what? Celebrate. Rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, would you have mercy upon me, upon those sitting in this room? Every one of us needs your grace. For in our trespasses, we are dead in sin, and yet it is by your grace alone that we become alive. And so would you bring to life those that are in this room, and would you let them know the rejoicing of your heart and them returning home to you. And so we thank you, we praise you, may you alone be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you're face-to-face with someone, there's no escaping intimacy. Like some of you, like when I look at you, you look away immediately, right? I don't know if it's the Korean in you or Asian, whatever blood, like whatever it is, but you've been taught in your young age, don't look at people dead in the eye. That's disrespectful. So when I look at some of you, you're like, for me, it's the same thing. When someone is eye to eye with me, there's like an intimacy and I just try to escape it by looking away. And so a lot of times when I'm talking to people, people will start looking away at the direction that I'm looking at and they're like, what are you looking at? And I'm just like, I'm avoiding intimacy with you, right? And, and, and so people get confused because they're like, why aren't you looking at me when I talk to you? And it's like, I just have major issues. I don't know what it is But when you first start dating, some kind of magical unicorn magic happens inside of you, right? And then instead of no longer being shy about looking away, there's this one person that captures your heart so much that you just want to stare into their eyes. You can't get enough of their face. You can't get enough of their hair. It feels like it's like a commercial, right? Their hair starts like flowing in the wind. You're like, man, it's glowing right? Their skin looks perfect, like, like just angelic, and you're just staring, and you're like, what did you say? Magic, right? Everything sounds amazing. You're paying attention. Everything feels great. Unicorn magic. After about a year or so of dating, those of you who've dated, those of you who are married, you know, after about a year or so, you start noticing other things. Instead of noticing the perfect skin and the wavy hair that always flows in the wind, you start noticing things like big pores, right? You're like, why are your pores so big? They're like black dots everywhere. Did you know that your nose is crooked? Like it kind of leans toward one direction, right? And then you start noticing like, Did you know that the front two teeth is like bigger than the rest of the teeth? And you feel like you're dating an entire different person. At first, they were angelic, nothing wrong with them. A year later, all of a sudden, it looks like they're like a different person. Buck teeth, big pores, nose crooked, hair is all disheveled. Aren't they the same person? 
Why so different? Then those of us who are married, what ends up happening is things just start fading, right? Just, they're just like a blob of body, you know, a human person. And I'm not saying this is the right thing, but they're just the person who you love, who you would die for, but they exist. They go into the kitchen, they yell at you to take out the trash, you know, and you're like, come get the child. And you know, you're just like fighting to survive with these children and all these other things. And they're just like this body, right? My wife would look at me sometimes and she would say, if I have something stuck in my teeth, tell me, why didn't you tell me that I had spinach stuck in my teeth? And I would be like, I didn't see it. And my wife would be like, you would have seen it when we were dating. Oh. Right? It's true. Like when you're dating, you notice everything. Did you cut your hair? It's beautiful. Did you, is that a new shirt? Oh, that's beautiful. After you were married for a while, they're just these big blobs of things that move and you're just trying to survive. But then you have to go deeper. Because if you stay there and they're just these big blobs and you get comfortable as blobs that are like helping each other, like take out the trash and do the dishes and take care of children and do ministry and these things, then you become like expendable and you just get used to them, comfortable. And so you have to go beyond. And so you fight, you pray, you ask God for the grace to not just get used to having a warm body. And then somewhere along the way, God gives you the grace to see how your wife serves the people at your church, your children, how she sacrifices. Every time she cooks food, she always gives you the bigger steak, less vegetables, and you start noticing weird things, and you're like, oh, every day she sacrifices, and she becomes more beautiful. You see, it's not just one moment, but there are stages, and it feels like you're in this stage, and you're going to be in love forever, and then all of a sudden, you hit a place where you start noticing all the negative things, and you feel like, man, this is no good, and then you just become complacent, and everything feels the same. Maybe some of you come to this retreat every year, and Jesus just feels the same. You remember the first time when you wept and snot hit the floor and people were coming around you. You're reconciling, repenting, apologizing to people. Then you came the year after, after. And then maybe you're now a senior in high school and you're like, are we going to cry together on the last night? I don't want to cry. Maybe you're numb. But being face-to-face, becoming intimate, going deeper than you've ever gone before, you need grace. You need grace and you need help that your heart that has grown numb, that have grown accustomed to the things that are being said for, for you to say, I want more than that. I know there's more than that. I look at other people who love you and there's so much more that they talk about. I want that. And I remember spending most of my youth group days asking God, God, where is the days of old when I used to weep before your feet? I can't anymore. Every time I read scripture, I fall asleep. Like, what is that? Is this it? And then I remember thinking, God will do something different today. And then again and again, year after year, feeling like, when is it going to happen? 
Face-to-face intimacy is what we're longing for, and if it is what we desire and what we long for, then we need grace, grace to see. And as the Bible would say, then we plead with the Holy Spirit because it's not up to you. It's not up to the speaker. It's not because Chanu gets up here and sings that song. You know, I almost want to cry every single time I see What a beautiful name. I'm like, yes. But it can't just be about the song. It can't be because Pastor DL and the other pastors bring the best speaker that they know of. Then it would be just DL speaking every year. When we open the Bible, like Luke chapter 15, it seems like the story that we've heard before again and again. If you've been in church long enough, someone has preached this passage again and again and again. And for those of you who've never heard it before, let me summarize it. There are two sons, and and, and the two stories about the sheep and the coin relate, but these two sons... The youngest one comes to the father and basically says, you're dead to me. I want to live my life the way that I want to. I don't want to be under your control, whatever you want. Give me my inheritance. So the father takes the inheritance, gives it to the younger son. The younger son goes to a foreign land and spends it, just lives it up. You know, all the, you know, partying, whatever is, invites his friend, drinking, just wasting his life away, everything. And then when he has run out of money and there's, he's sitting at a pig pen and just longing for food. And then he realizes the servants of his father's household have more than he does. So he comes home. And you would think the father would be angry, but he's actually waiting. He's waiting for his son to come home. He embraces him. He has a speech ready and tells the father the speech and says, I have been a horrible son. Just make me a servant. And he's about to say it. The father embraces him, runs, catches him, and then says, bring the best robe, the best of everything, the ring, restore my son. Then he says, let's throw a party, throws a big party with the fattened calf, the best meat possible. Then the older son, who has been faithful, working at home this entire time, doing what, the, what he thinks the father wants, sees the party, and then he goes, I just can't understand why you would love him and throw this big party. Why? Haven't I been the good son who has been faithful? And the father comes out to the older son and loves him. And he says, isn't everything I own already yours? The older son and all the things that he had done had forgotten who he is. He's not a servant. He is the son who owns everything the father owns. You know, oftentimes, Christianity will seem like the central focus is on what a Christian should be doing, right? For a lot of you, you've been taught that a Christian, when you're in pain, you smile, right? And you say words like this, hey, man, are you okay? Man, I'm sorry about everything happened with your house and with your parents. And then you go, I'm okay. God is good. But inside you're feeling pain, but you are told and taught to be always positive because that's what a Christian does. Or more often for youth group students, it's that youth pastor. I remember when I was in youth group, there would, you know, speakers would literally come, tell the story, and be like, you know who you are. And we would all be like, what? He's talking about me? He was like, yeah, 
Let me tell you about hell. And then we would all be like, what? And he's like, there's a place where people like you go where there's fire and it burns all the time. And then in my head, I was like, wouldn't you get used to it? And he's like, you never get used to it. You just burn, and then there's snakes, and they're choking you, and there's the devil, and he's pitchforking you, and all this. Do you want that? And then we would all sit there and be like, no. (laughs) Raise your hand if you want to go to hell. And I was like, this is pretty obvious. No. (laughs) Raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. We would all be like, oh, yeah. If you want to go to heaven, repent. Do you want to be like the older son? What is wrong with you? Do you want to be like the younger son? Don't be angry. Just repent. Come back. And so in our hearts, we've heard messages like this over and over. And basically what it comes down to is then it will go into application. And he would say, a Christian doesn't drink. And we'll be like, not water? Like, no, just hard stuff. Don't drink the hard stuff. A Christian doesn't smoke. And I'd be like, no smoking. No drinking. A Christian doesn't date before 25. I was like, 25? When I was 13, I was like, 25? That's like a lifetime ago. And all the hustle, busyness, everything that the pastors are telling you, the preachers, all the church, your parents are reinforcing it at home. It's like, your skirt's too short. You're not doing this well. If you're going to lead worship, then wear long pants. Make sure your hair looks this way. On and on and on and on. And then you look at other people who are praying like four hours, five hours, six hours a day. And you're like, I can't even pray 15 minutes. I can't get through the book of Deuteronomy or Numbers. We spend all of our Christianity thinking about the things not only that we have to do, and it just beats us up, not only the things that we must and how much we pray and how much we read, but what's killing us is the things that we can't, and then we find our hearts are starting to long for these things. Your friends invite you to the parties. Your friends are going out and having fun. It looks like their life is blowing up, and in your heart, you're like, I want those things, but I'm a Christian, and so you beat yourself up even more. God, How can I call myself a Christian if I want these things? And some of you, somewhere along the way, you break your heart, your will to fight. It breaks, and you just start giving in. And then you spend the rest of the time just feeling guilty and shameful, and every time you step into the church, you feel like you're going to hell. That's what I went through for so long. This is the big problem with this passage that you have heard over and over and over, and you receive it differently. You hear it as if you cannot be these two sons. Over and over, you tell yourself, don't be the legalistic you know, hypocrites who are at church, who are judging other people, always angry, and don't be the younger son. Don't go out partying. Don't do all these things that your parents are saying no. Be good at hiding it. Be good at suppressing your longings. I remember when um, we were in college, you know, uh, Larry started growing out his beard. 
And he, when he was, uh, Pastor d i o when he was preaching, he would sit on the stool. Did you guys notice the stool? And then I noticed like all of us young, young guys who were going into mission, we started growing beards. Right? We were like growing chin hair. I still have it. But we're growing our chin hair. David Crowder did it. David Larry did it. You know, so we were just following along. And then guys started like sitting on the stool with no, you know what would happen to me if I had no notes? It would be horrible. And go here, then we go there. What we have done in Christianity is we've looked at people that we look up to and all we've learned to do is mimic them. We've learned, don't be the older brother, don't be the younger brother. And if we look at people who look like someone who's gone beyond the younger and older brother, we copy them and mimicking is not enough. Because you can spend all your life thinking you want to look like a son, but look what the younger son did. He said, I want to be like who? The older brother. Let me be a servant like the older brother. And that's what you're doing. You're saying, my older brother looks like the obedient one, the one who does all the right things, but yet, look at the older brother. He thought he deserved the goat only. All his hard work, being so close to the father's heart, in his mind, he could only imagine that as a son. But see, that's where it went wrong. He never understood what it meant to be a son, just a servant. And the younger son thought that's what the father would want. And so he said, I would mimic the older son. The son that stayed close, the son that didn't sin, the son that didn't move away, the son that didn't waste and flounder your money. And so the younger son, before he could even say the words, I will be a servant, the same as the older brother, the father stops him and reminds him, you are my son. Every single one of you sitting in this room, you go from like running away from God, then when you come back, basically what you're saying to God is, I have run away, but now I'm ready to be like the older son. I'm ready to be good. I'm ready to read the Bible. I'm ready to pray. I'm ready to do all the things that a Christian does. But all you're saying is, I want to mimic those who went before me. And the father is saying, you are my son, unique, loved, and beloved, just as I have created you. I want you to come home. I want you to be restored. We spend so much time thinking about the two sons that whether we are one or the other, that if we're the younger son, we need to repent. If we're the older son, stop being so legalistic and learn on and on. What if I were to tell you that instead of listening to the story of the two sons, that you got to listen to the third son? You have to listen to the story of the third son. And some of you are like, what the? (laughs) What third son? You know what? I've been at church all my life. I am PK. I grew up reading this every single day. What third son are you talking about? Right? You guys are all looking. You're like flipping the Bible. It's like, third son. There is a character in Luke chapter 15 
that nobody ever thinks about. The story about the two sons is being told by the third son who knows the father intimately, face to face. The son that is telling the story, the voice of the one pleading with every single one of us is the voice of the true son, the one and only begotten son who is telling us, look, many of you react and interact and relate to the father like the first and the second. You're coming and you're trying and you're pouring out. Then you get so burnt out, you go out and you party and you live it up and then that feels empty and you swing back. Then you go back, college, youth group and in your mind you feel like where am I supposed to go if I stay in church I feel dry if I go out and party that's it that's all I do have fun just living it up is that it but I feel a longing and a pulling for God like what is it and the son is saying it's because you're trying to look like a servant so that the father will love you and you had forgotten that you have always been loved You have always been the son. You have been the son since you were legalistic and judging and fighting. And you were a son when you ran away and you lived a horrible life against what is best for you. And I have waited for you and I have longed for you. And every day without knowing, the father waited for the younger son to come home. So the one and only begotten son is now telling you who the father really is. You see this, Luke chapter 15 is about the son who has a deep, personal, intimate, unchanging, perfect relationship with the father. And he's telling you what it's not. He's giving you examples of what it can't be. And he's saying, let me tell you what it is. And it is more glorious than you could have ever imagined. He is so certain of the Father's love and His perfections and characters and who He is that the Father would tell the Son in eternity past in order for me to bring them home, my enemies, people who have sinned against and who have done all things to break my heart in order for me to bring them home, my most beloved Son, you have to go to the cross. You who have never done anything wrong, you who have been perfect in obedience and harmony with me, I need you to go to the cross. And every time he said it, it would break his heart. And the son who had the perfect relationship, who would never doubt, never doubt because he fully trusted the father, would say, I will go. I will go and bear the sins of the very ones who would reject me and hate me. And I would die for their sin. And I would live the life that they couldn't live so that you can bring them home. You see, everything from Genesis to Revelation is that story. It's about the son telling you what it took to bring you home. 
that it would take generations and people and preserving them from all the kings who try to destroy the people that would eventually bring the sun into this world. Because that is redemption. That is grace. That is the gospel. And the son, the third son in this story is telling you this marvelous relationship you're missing out on because you keep thinking that Christianity is about doing the right things, mimicking the right people. That I'm going to reject all the things that are bad in this world. You know what? That's not it. You're not a Christian because you don't do bad things and you're not a Christian because you try to live a perfect life that you read. You're not a Christian because of what you do or don't do. You're a Christian because Christ, the perfect son, was willing to die for your sins. And he lived the perfect life you couldn't live. It has nothing to do with you. You are not saved because you're better than other people. You are not loved because you obey more than other people. You are loved because the Father loves the Son and the Son gave His life for you. All that is good in the Father, all that is good in the Son is now credited to you as righteousness. No one can take that away. You can't take that away. You can't sin enough to ever make God love you less than he loved you by sending his son to die for you. I know that many of you struggle because you say, why would God, who's so loving, who would give his son, let my parents get divorced? I prayed every day since I was a kid that they wouldn't, and they still did. Why? Why did my parents, who worked so hard at this restaurant, laundromat, wherever, why did they lose everything? Why is our family struggling financially? I cried out to you like you jacked it up. You weren't there for that. Why did my mom die of cancer when I asked you just one thing, that you would stop that? Why was I abused or raped and I cried out to you and you weren't there? Because if this is the reality, why? Because this stops many of you from believing that this love that he has for you is true and real. You know why you can't hear the story that the third son is telling because in your mind, these things becoming the roadblocks and the reasons why you can't trust him. You look at all the surface area of all the things that you're happening in your limited understanding and you say, because of this, I won't believe you. And yet there is something so deep that he is doing that is so powerful that we cannot understand because every wound that you have in your life at the root of it is sin. Is the sin that is inside of someone else who perpetrated against you. It is sin that is in yourself that you have done to other people. It is sin why we hate. It is sin why we divorce. It is sin that is so deep. And what God 
had to do was kill his only son to address the one thing that's destroying you and me. Because until that is dealt with, there cannot be healing, there cannot be reconciliation, there cannot be renewal in life. God killed his only son so you can come home. He longs for you. There's a long 13-year journey for me. Now, I guess 15 years, something like that. Personally, that helps me understand what it's like to grieve and long for coming of someone, like the father longed for the son. You know, ever since I was a little kid, you know, like I was like your age, I kid you not, I, I still remember when I was like sixth, seventh grade, I would go and pick up babies, you know? And, and I would be like, you know, I'd be like shaking the baby. You don't want to shake them too much, but you know, I was like, ah, cutie, you know, and I would like pinch their bellies and I'm like, ah, you know, and all the moms are like, oh, you like babies? And I was like, I love babies. <laughs> Especially, no. It's awesome. I don't know if I'm going to get through this sermon if you keep laughing. Okay. And like, I would pinch the babies, and I especially love the babies with the fat rolls, and I would always be like, oh, I can't wait until I have a baby, and they're fat, you know? And I was just like, I'm going to pinch their fat, and I'm going to roll, and it's going to be awesome. And I would always volunteer at Sunday school to teach. I would always just be around kids. I longed for that day when I would have my own kid. I love babies. When I got married, I think my desire was that, oh, man, I wonder what my baby's going to look like. And there was this, like, always longing, like, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be cute. My nose is pretty jacked up. It's pretty big. I don't want that to go in there. Maybe my wife's nose will go in there. And, you know, and you just dream about what your baby's going to look like. I hope they're not fat like me, you know, and you just keep, like, you know, because people are going to make fun of them. And you're just, like, struggling. You're all in your mind. It's like, maybe I won't feed them so they don't get fat, you know, and you're just, like, just imagining what your child's going to look like. My wife and I miscarried our first child. And I remember when she started bleeding, my heart just... But you know, pastor, good Christian, you just... There's a reason for the pain. God is good. You just you know, and you pray and you thank God for the life that was there and you, you just get through. Second miscarriage, third miscarriage, fourth miscarriage, fifth miscarriage, sixth miscarriage. It gets to a point where you start dreading getting pregnant. Because you're waiting for the bleeding. You're waiting for the loss. You're waiting for things to go wrong. And your heart is just, why would you not give me a child? You had given me a heart that longs to know what it's like to be a father as you are a father who would give a son and how, what a struggle. Every time I would read about Isaac, I would want to know. I don't know what that's like because I don't, I don't have a kid. I don't know what it's like with the loss and all. In my mind, I just couldn't get it. 
And that's probably the reason why my wife left because of the many miscarriages and the losses. And I'll share with you that story another time. But after many years of loss and brokenness and just even the loss of my family, the church, and different things, I remarried. And my wife, I remember when she looked at me, she said, I want to help you heal from so many of your broken things. And I remember just being so thankful that she would say something like that. But even though I was thankful, there's no way that my wounds would heal. I was thankful, but there's still fear and doubts. She said she would want to be used by God and bring healing to my broken heart. After our honeymoon, the first month, we were pregnant. My wife was so happy. She was just like, she jumped on the bed. She like put the pee-covered stick in my face, you know, and I was like, oh, is that pee? And then I was like, wait, is that a pregnancy stick? Oh, my God, are we having a baby? And she was like, ah, and we were like, ah, and celebrating. But as soon as I began celebrating in the pit of my heart, that voice came again and was like, But what if you lose this one? You see, the rejoicing was capped because of my wounds and my brokenness, and I couldn't believe it would be possible. But I hid it, and I tried to celebrate as much as I can, and and my wife knew, and so she would be like, it's okay, you know, we'll celebrate. And so she called her family. I remember we went out to Seoul, barbecue, Korean barbecue, and you know, Northern Virginia, it's delicious. If you come to Northern Virginia, you got to check that place out. I'm going to take Larry. Yeah. Um, and as we went to Soul Barbecue and we were celebrating this new life, you know, new marriage, new joy, new pregnancy, just everyone was so happy for me. But we miscarried again. We miscarried for the first time, my wife. And that was 2012. One month after we were married, we miscarried. She started bleeding. It was so familiar. It felt exactly like the time that I remember walking in in the previous times. And we even went to, to see the sack where the baby would be, to hear the heartbeat. And I remember the, the person went and, and put the gel and put the thing, and then they, they kept moving it around and moving it around. And I kept, and then my fears increased and increased, and they kept moving. And I knew it was bad when they brought in the doctor, and the doctor put the thing and kept looking and looking and looking. And then they said, I'm so sorry. There is no heartbeat. There is no baby. And I remember just weeping and weeping. It was so familiar that nothing was new. Even though my wife who wanted to heal my wounds from my past was sitting there, 
I couldn't expect the baby. It wouldn't happen for me. As I grieved in the bed, my wife looked at me in the eye and she said, I'm so sorry that I can't give you a child. And I remember looking at her saying, why is it your fault? And I remember thinking, it's just not going to happen. After that miscarriage, we couldn't get pregnant, let alone a miscarriage. We couldn't get pregnant for two years. Again and again, doctor after doctor, hormone shots. We were going to see the fertility treatment. We were getting hanyak, you know, that nasty, like, like, like bear claw and, and, and traps and mosquito dung and, you know, all that stuff that they put in there and you drink it and you get, like, you know, the people to put in the needles in your body and all of it, Western medicine, Eastern medicine, couldn't get pregnant for two years. There was a point when my mother-in-law got so involved that she cooked her own batch of hanyak and gave it to me. She's not an expert because I ended up in the hospital with cardiac arrest symptoms. And the doctor was like, we don't know why, but your heart is so fast. And, you know, and we were like, uh, maybe it was the hanyak. The thing that came so easily, the thing that teenagers try to avoid while they're living in sin, like the, why couldn't God give me that? I loved him. I served him. I gave my life for him. But he wouldn't give me the one thing that I longed for. But I longed, I still longed, but I kept burying it deeper and deeper and deeper. Can we show the first slide? That's my little girl. Madison Hope. After two years and crazy prayer and lots of crazy things, we were pregnant. And I had the same fears. And you know what I did? We got so much further along that I created an email for her so people wouldn't steal it. <laughs> MadisonHopesa at gmail.com. And I would remember when my wife would be like, she stopped moving. And I would be like, what? And I would pick up the phone and I would start writing and I would tell Madison, it was like, why aren't you moving? Like, what is wrong? And daddy's praying for you. And I would send one email and then I would go to Amazon and buy a heart Doppler so that I can, because I couldn't wait for the doctor's visit. So I started, I bought the gel and I bought the Doppler and I would be like, okay, heartbeat. <laughs> and I would, <laughs> I, would, I would do that every day. And my wife was like, I get it. Okay, belly. And so she would just know by the way that I look, and she would be like, do it. 
And then I would put the thing in, I would hear her heartbeat, and I would go, oh, God. And then I would write her an email. I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, why are you scaring me? Oh, my God, Madison, I think you're going to not be there, and I'm crying out. And I would just, and so, you know, most people write their daughters these, like, emails of, I can't wait to see you. My daughter is going to get an email full of, oh, my God, you're going to die. I can't hear your heartbeat. Like, I, that's like, I wrote 27 emails during that pregnancy, and all of it is about, I can't wait to see you, but you better stop scaring me, and you better move, and all these things. Did you know that there are 66 letters that God the Father wrote to you from the beginning of time? And he keeps telling you, I long for you to come home. Every word written in that book is his cry, his email. Your Gmail account is in that book, and he's telling you, I would go through heaven and hell and even kill my only son so that I can bring you home. That kings cannot overcome my purpose to bring you home. You see, my longing to bring Madison home pales a billion percent to how the Father longs for you to come home. Can we show the next one? And then he gave me this one who's only six weeks old, six weeks. I left her at home. That's Bailey Faith. Next. That's us. What if I were to tell you that the 13, 15 years of pain that I had experienced would be nothing for God if one of you would come home because of my pain. He would go to the ends of the earth. He doesn't cause me pain just for the sake of causing me pain. What if I were to tell you that there is nothing on this earth that can stop him from longing for you to come home to his heart? Madison, every day, she grabs both my ears and then she presses her cheek against my cheek. And then she goes, Daddy. I love it, Daddy. And when I leave her in her bed to go to bed at night, she goes, Daddy, water. And then I give her water. And then she goes, Daddy, lay down on pillow. Daddy, five minutes. (laughs) And I get to watch my daughter go to bed. And I... Praise God every second of every moment that I have with her because she is home.
with me. There is a God who would move heaven and earth to bring you home. And Luke chapter 15 is not about you being a better person, more moral person. It's not about you not smoking or drinking or becoming better. This story is about a father who would move heaven and earth to bring you home, even at the cost of his beloved son. You know what no one has to force God to do? Rejoice when you come home. And you know what no one has to tell me to do? Is post pictures of my daughters on Facebook, Instagram. I even thought about opening Snapchat. But I was like, this is weird. I know you guys love it. It's like, no. But I just can't do it. I can only manage two social media accounts. I'm too old to have like four and five, and so I'm down to two. No one has to make me post on Facebook and Instagram about my daughters. You know what? I know some people who defriended me, and Facebook was so kind to people that they created a thing called unfollow. Unfollow means you, can't, you don't have to defriend them so they know that you defriended, but you don't have to see their stuff on their wall anymore. You know how many people do that to me? All the time. You know why? Because every single day, there's a picture of my daughters. Maybe four, maybe six. I lost track. You know how many pictures I have in my phone right now? Thousands. 98% compose of my daughters. No one has to make me rejoice in my daughters because my longing, my longing will be comparable to my rejoicing. And the Father's longing for you is so much deeper than mine could ever be for you to go home to the Father. So if you're going to be my Facebook friend, I apologize. But I don't mean it. Because I don't care. <laughs> Until my very last breath, I will post the heck out of my daughters. So much so that they will defriend me, but I don't care. Because when they're 35, they're going to refriend me and realize how deeply their father loved them. And some of you have defriended God because you're tired of all the servants and people who are pursuing you and trying to get you to understand how deeply he loves you. And your heart is tired of hearing the same thing again and again, that he loves you, but there is no end to which he will go to make sure you know that he is waiting for you to come home. Let's pray.
if I could cry a river of tears to let you know how much he loves you, I think I would. I think other pastors would. You see, I, I, I just, I wished that you would not read his letters of longing for you as if it was some kind of manuscript to do and follow so that he would love you because every page from Genesis 1 to Revelation till the very last page speaks about his longing for you to come home. That I will make people who are not my people, my people. That the father would put his only son on the cross to make his enemies children of God. This is why Christianity cannot start with scaring you into believing that you want heaven over hell. It cannot begin with a list of things to do. It cannot begin with you looking at me and other pastors and leaders and saying, do what we do, because it cannot be about our relationship with our Father, it's about you and Him. He uniquely knit you together in your mother's womb. He knew you before time began, and you are uniquely created to be you, and He loves you. He loves your quirks. He loves how different you are. He loves the way He's made you, and you weren't meant to love Him the way that other people have. You were meant to love Him as yourself. You cannot be loved by him because you are copying other people. He created you to know him face to face, intimately. And when your heart has grown numb from all the wrong things and your affections being poured out to other things, he is waiting for you to cry out and say, God, grant me the grace to come near you again, to see you face to face, just as Moses would say, let me see you. It could kill you, but still, nevertheless, where would we go? So can we take this time and pray? You cannot begin this journey with the Lord with promises of all the things you're going to change. You can't say, God, now that I get it, I'm going to give this up. I'm going to read more. I'm going to love the Bible more. You see, those are byproducts of this affection that he has for you. 
because there will be a lot of times in our lives when we can't love him the way that we want to and we'll fall by the wayside and we'll feel dry. But it's once again his love for us. He has finished the work required to bring us home. He has died on the cross. He has lived the perfect life. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing you can fail at that will make him love you less. He loves you, period. You have to begin at the gospel. And you find that as you walk and as you're being sanctified, that it all is sustained by the gospel. And at the end, when he brings you home, you realize that it was by grace that you have grown, that you have forsaken sin, and that you have loved him. You know what the passion of the pastors of this generation is that you would rise to be a generation that longs for him to be with him face to face as his servant Moses, as those who have gone before him like Peter who would fail so deeply, wretchedly, denying him, and yet Jesus would call him and say, go and feed my lamb. You are to become a generation that isn't scared into faith. You aren't supposed to be a generation that is tricked and emotionally manipulated into believing God, but you are to look at the Bible at its face value and know that it is letters written to you and your heart and the cost to Him to bring you home. And that the Holy Spirit would take hearts that are stone and that are dead and that He would make them live. And that you would know a love that is so true that it would change every relationship in your life. So true that you could lose your loved ones, that your family could fall apart and you cannot deny because he is the one comfort and peace and rest for your soul. That you would have clarity of thought, backbone of steel, and trust that comes in the perfections and character of God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever unchanging in his love and longing for you to come home. Will you be that generation? We're not just singing songs that feel good. You are singing to the lover of your soul. You know why I cry when I say beautiful? What a beautiful name. I don't cry because I'm a cry baby. 
I cry because he is that beautiful and unchanging, the most certain thing in my life, that through the hardest times and the biggest losses, he was present and he would send others to make sure that I knew that he was present. Those that knew the gospel would again dispense the gospel that they have received and the grace that they drank of daily would pour out into my loss and wounds. You are to be that generation that looks at someone struggling with homosexuality and just feeling like they don't know where to go. They want to be with the Lord and they're struggling and to sit with them and love them and tell them the truth of an abundant life and their identity, not in sexuality, but in Christ, so powerful, so full of love. To be that generation, you need clarity of heart and thought. In the unchanging truth. And so, can we pray? Can you pray for the person next to you as we spend a few days together, as we worship together? Can you ask God, God, would you let this be a time of clarity? I don't want to just laugh. I don't want to just jump up and sing. And You can do all of that, but you have to know why. You have to know why you cry. You have to know why you weep, why you reconcile, why you dance, why you sing, why the songs move you. It's because he wants to be face to face with you. He wants to love you like you've never been loved and like you will never be loved again. So let's pray together. And for those of you that your heart has grown weary and tired, retreat after retreat, serving after serving, can you just place your hand on your heart? Just, it's not magical, it's just an expression of you saying, God, would you take this heart? However long it takes, Whatever I need to go through, whether it be sorrow, 
joy, learning, growth, whatever you need to do to let me know of this magnificent love, would you do that? I want to know your longing for me. I want to know clearly in my heart and my mind and my soul and all of my being. I want to know you. Would you do that? Would you have mercy upon this soul? And know that he wants it more than you want it. And for those of you that are just caught up in sin, drugs, sex, all the things they tell you not to do, it's going to be impossible for you to let those go apart from a greater affection that draws your heart and consumes and fills that emptiness. So it's not about letting go so you can love God more. It's letting God love you more so that you can let go. And so would you pray that for yourself, for those around you? And would you say, God, we need more of you. And so we are no longer going to promise the ways that I will change for you, but would you consume me and let the changes flow from that place of intimacy? And for those of you that uh, never heard this gospel, this truth that Jesus came for you specifically, that he died the death for the sins that you have committed, past, present, and future, that he has lived the life that you should, that you should have, that you should now, that you should in the future be living, that he has lived that life for you. And that by faith in Christ, you are now made one with him, forever a child, never to be taken away. Holy Spirit, now a guarantor, the Spirit crying out to the Spirit inside of you that you are children of God, If you would long for that, if there is a part of this gospel message that you want, that excites your soul, that it's almost too good to be true, and you are fearful to even grab for it, like I was fearful that I could ever have a child, if if there's that movement that the Holy Spirit is bringing you towards, then I would ask just to simply pray. 
and say, God, if you're real and if this love is really that generous and deep and unchanging, then I want it. I can't promise I'm going to change or become something, but if that love is true, then would you let me have it? Pray that prayer. Pray the simple prayer of a child that needs mercy and grace. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and keep praying. They'll lead us through a closing worship. And for many of you, worship will now be different because it will no longer be about what you do or don't do, but it will be about what He has done. So when you're ready and the praise team is ready, Let us all worship him together. But until then, just enjoy this time with God. Enjoy crying out and asking for mercy and being in his presence and his love for you.